Section twenty seven of Insurgent Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Gonzalez. Insurgent Mexico by John Reed. Part four. A People in Arms. Chapter three. First Blood. The water train pulled out first. I rode in a cow-catcher of the engine, which was already occupied with a permanent home to two women and five children. They had built a little fire of mesquite twigs on an narrow iron platform, and were baking tortillas there. Over their heads, against the windy roar of the boiler, fluttered a little line of waso. It was a brilliant day, hot sunshine alternating with big white clouds, in two thick columns, one on each side of the train, the army was already moving south. As far as the eye could reach, a mighty double cloud of dust floated over them, and little straggling groups of mounted men jogged along, with every now and then a big Mexican flag. Between slowly moved the trains, the pillars of black smoke from the engines, at regular intervals, growing smaller until over the northern horizon only a dirty mist appeared. I went down into the caboose to get a drink of water, and there I found the conductor of the train lying in his bunk reading the Bible. He was so interested and amused that he didn't notice me for a minute. When he did, he cried delightedly, Oiga, I found a great story about a chap called Samson who was muy hombre, a good deal of a man, and his woman. She was a Spaniard, I guess, for the main trick she played on him. He started out being a good revolutionist, a maderista, and she made felon, means literally crop head, and is a slang term for a federal soldier, because the federal army is largely recruited from the prisons. Our advance guard, with a telegraph field operator, had gone on to Conejos the night before, and they met the train with great excitement. The first blood of the campaign had been spilt, a few Colorados scouting northward, from Bermejillo had been surprised and killed just behind the shoulder of the big mountain which lies to the east. The telegrapher also had news. He had again tapped the federal wire, and sent to the federal commander to Torreon, signing the dead captain's name and asking for orders, since a large force of rebels seems to be approaching from the north. General Velasco replied that the captain should halt Conejos and throw an outpost to the north, to try and discover how large the force was. At the same time, the telegrapher had heard a message from Arguinedo, in command at Mapimi, saying that the entire north of Mexico was coming down on Torreon, together with Gringo army. Conejos was just like Yermo, except that there was no water tank. A thousand men with a white-bearded old General Rosalio Hernandez, riding ahead, went out almost at once and the repair train followed them few miles to a place where the Federals had burned two railroad bridges a few months before. Out beyond the last little bivouac of the Inmian's army spread around us. The desert slept silently in the heat waves. There was no wind. The men gathered with their women on the flat cars, guitars came out, and all night hundreds of singing voices came from the trains. The next morning I went to see Villa in his car. There was a red caboose with the chintz curtains in the windows, the famous little caboose which Villa had used in all his journeys since the fall of Juarez. 
It was divided by partitions into two rooms. The kitchen and the grown-up's bedroom. This tiny room, ten by twenty feet, was the heart of the Constitutionalist Army. There were held all the councils of war, and there was scarcely room enough for fifteen generals who met there. In these councils the vital immediate questions of the campaign were discussed. The general decided what was to be done, and then Villa gave his orders to suit himself. It was painted a dirty grey. All the walls were tacked photographs of showy ladies in theatrical poses, a large picture of Carranza, one of Fierro, and a picture of Villa himself. Two double-wood wooden bunk folded up against the wall, in one of which Villa and General Angeles slept, and in the other Jose Rodriguez and Dr. Rashbain, Villa's personal physician. That was all. ¿Qué desea, amigo? What do you want? said Villa, sitting on the end of the bunk in Ben clothes. The troopers who lounged around the place lazily made way for me. I want a horse. With Hendral. Catrai, our friend here, wants a horse. Grinned Villa sarcastically amid a burst of laughter from the others. Why, your correspondence will be waiting on an automobile next. Oiga, senor reporter, do you know that about a thousand men in my army have no horses? Here's the train. What do you want for a horse? So I can ride with advance. No, he smiled. There are too many balazos, too many bullets flying in advance. He was hurrying into his clothes as he talked, and gulping coffee from the side of the dirty tin coffee pot. Somebody handed him his gold-handled sword. No, he said contemptuously. This is to be a fight, not a parade. Give me my rifle. He stood at the door of his caboose for a moment, thoughtfully looking at the long lines of mounted men, picturesque in their cross-cartridge belts and varied equipment. Then he gave a quick few orders and mounted his big stallion. Vamonos, cried Villa. The bugles brayed and a subdued silver clicking ringing sounded as the companies wheeled and trotted southward in the dust. And so the army disappeared. During the day we thought we heard cannonading from the southwest where Urbina was reported to be coming down from the mountains to attack Mapimi, and late in the afternoon news came of the capture of Bemahilio, and a courier from Benavides said that he had taken Clawalilo. We were in a fever impatience to be off. About sundown Senor Calzado remarked that the repair train would leave in an hour, so we grabbed a blanket and walked a mile up the line of trains to it. End of section 27. Recording by Paul Gonzalez in Cavite, Philippines.